this week's special edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Boy, this has been an unbelievable week, emotional in so many ways between the Senate impeachment trial, what's happening here in in American politics, and just the tragic news of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven other innocent souls losing their lives in a tragic helicopter accident last Sunday. Just, uh, it's a lot. It's really a lot. And um, makes you stop and reevaluate what's important in life, to hug your loved ones, and um, just, uh, it just really makes you reevaluate things. And so it's, uh, it's, it's been one of those weeks. And for me, it's been also a week of new adventures beginning. I am coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts on the campus of Harvard University, where for those who don't know, I have been named a resident fellow for the Harvard School Institute of Politics, the Kennedy School Institute of Politics. I'm one of six resident fellows for the spring semester, and I'm teaching a study group here weekly, a weekly study group starting next week on the um, idea of party versus principle, or really principle versus party. And I'm excited about this opportunity, and I moved up to my on-campus apartment this week. So in the midst of all of this just insanity going on uh, in, in politics with the impeachment trial and then just the absolute heartbreak of the Kobe situation. And then this, it's just been an up and down emotional kind of a week for me. But um, uh, I, uh, I wanted to make sure that I got a podcast out in the middle of all this to get, to get my thoughts on, on record and for my listeners, because I know they want to hear what I have to say. So uh, my guest this week is former Clinton press secretary, Joe Lockhart, He lived through the Clinton impeachment in 1998-99, and I just thought that he would be a good resource for uh, for my listeners because he was there. He, you know, just the differences between how that trial went and how it was handled and what's happening now. Uh, I just thought he'd be a good firsthand person to talk about it because I don't want to relitigate all of the nuts and bolts of what's going on with the trial. We, We kind of were fatigued with this, right? Um, but perspective is something that I think is always important. And Joe Lockhart's going to bring some of that. The interview with him was recorded before the vote on Senate witnesses. So, um, but his comments about the the differences between what's going on and, uh, his opinion on how the, the Senate trial has been run is still valid because it, um, it, it doesn't matter. We kind of already knew what the, what the, end result was going to be. So it's an interesting, very interesting. He, some of the things he says, um, about the experience in in 98 and some of the senators who were actually there at the time. And he talks about Ken Starr, as we saw Ken Starr was now, he's on the Trump defense team for God's sakes. And he was the independent counsel who was very active, very, um, a very, uh, an advocate for Trump, uh, Clinton's impeachment in 98, 99, and uh, what a 180 he took. So Joe Lockhart has some colorful things to say about those characters. <laughs> uh, Alan Dershowitz also. So stay tuned for that. Um, but before I get into the whole impeachment debacle, uh, which is just, it makes me heart sick about the state of our country, the state of our constitution, 
the profiles and cowardice of our senators is it weighs heavily on me. It really does. And um, but before I get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Kobe real quick. Even though I'm not a Lakers fan, I didn't grow up a Lakers fan. I am a long suffering Knicks fan. I always had respect for Kobe Bryant and his abilities as a competitor, which is what a lot of people have said, the whole Mamba mentality and all of that. And in the beginning of his career, he was very arrogant and people thought, you know, who the hell is this kid? Who does he think he is coming in here thinking he's going to be the next Michael Jordan? And he turned out to really be the next Michael Jordan, whether it was playing the way he played defense, which he didn't get enough credit for, um, you know, five championships, he emulated everything he did. He emulated after Michael Jordan and all the way down to the way he chewed gum. And this week, while I've been up here at, in, in Cambridge at Harvard, Steve Kerr, the, the Golden State Warriors head coach, used to play in the NBA, played on the championship teams with Jordan. He also played for San Antonio um, during his career. But Steve Kerr, he, uh, first of all, I had no idea about his background, a very interesting guy. I had no idea that his dad was an academic and who he, he was assassinated in 1984 in Beirut, Lebanon, and that Steve Kerr was actually born in Beirut, Lebanon. Um, and, but he ended up growing up in LA as a kid cause his dad got uh, a job at UCLA, but he went back to Beirut, um, for another academic appointment and ended up getting, assassinated there by Muslim extremists. So very interesting background by Steve Kerr, but he was here up at Harvard speaking at the JFK forum. And I went to go hear him speak because I really wanted to hear what he had to say about Kobe. And he did, he talked about how, um, the, just the, the evolution of Kobe's career and who he had become, um, from the time he was a, a young guy to, to the dad and post NBA career, uh, and life that he had. And he got emotional talking about it, just like everyone else. Uh, but he, he said that he, he was worried about Kobe in retirement because when someone is at that level for so long as a competitor, that it's really hard for them to walk away from it. But he was pleased to see that he took on the role as a dad and, and community leader and investing in, in female athletics because he has all girls. Kobe did. Um, and it, it sparked the hashtag girl dad this week. Some people may have seen that trending on social media. And, um, but it was, um, it was, it was an interesting talk. And I, and I just, and I felt that because even though I wasn't a Lakers fan as Kobe, as a competitor, as you watched him, you just had to respect his heart. If you were going into battle on, on the basketball court, Kobe Bryant was who you'd want. And, he put everything into it, the discipline, you know, even through injury. Sometimes people would say he was, a, you know, some too selfish because he wanted the ball all the time. He wanted to carry the team on his shoulders all the time. And more times than not, he did. But um, I just think because of people, especially in my age group, you know, I'm 44 and I, we all grew up with Kobe. We watched him grow up. So his tragic death just kind of makes you stop and think about your own mortality. And it's just one of those things where his presence was bigger than life. Um, and it makes you just stop and think about it. Like, wow, like what's like life without Kobe Bryant and just the, the added 
tragedy of it all is that his 13 year old daughter was with him. And then the others that were on the flight uh, on that tragic uh, helicopter flight, the girl's coach, and then another family that lost a a mother, a father and a sister. And I mean, it's just tragedy all around. And as more information comes out about the circumstances surrounding the crash, it's just heartbreaking because it was avoidable. It seems they shouldn't have been flying in that weather. The helicopter wasn't certified to fly in that kind of those kind of weather conditions. And ay ay ay, the difference between clearing the hill and not was like thirty feet. What I'm what's being reported. I mean, ay, I've just just prayers for all the families, to Vanessa Bryant and her family and and the others. Um, it's just uh, just hug your loved ones. Um, but I wanted to also. Uh, play something that I came across in the course of the coverage of the Kobe situation that I found really compelling. And it's from a um, host of a show called The Daily Blast out in Denver. I actually guest hosted on that show back in 2018 for five days in Denver. It's a fun show, panel show, a great group of folks out there. They're really down to earth. And they've been doing some really insightful work and had, had some insightful conversations and uh, Lindsay Granger is her name. She's one of the newer co-hosts on that show. And she um, gave a really impassioned commentary on uh, this Washington Post reporter who within minutes of Kobe's death being reported, tweeted out about Kobe's sexual assault case. We all remember that back in 2003. And the case ended up getting settled. The victim did not testify and it was settled. And, you know, Kobe went on to, um, you know, become a a good citizen, let's say. We will never know, I guess, exactly what happened in that situation. But this reporter for The Washington Post decided that that was what she was going to highlight minutes after this beloved worldwide figure, Kobe Bryant, dies tragically in a helicopter crash um, along with his daughter and, and seven others. So um, I just want to play some of the audio. It's a, it's about two and a half minutes, but I think what Lindsey Granger had to say about the way that journalists cover things, especially in this day and age, um, it was poignant and well worth promoting. Stay tuned one second. Okay, I have it. It's two clips. I'm going to play the first one and then um, I'll play the second one. This is Lindsay Lindsay Granger from The Daily Blast Live. Uh, Which is a talk show, panel show, where we explain conversations with opinion. I was a journalist for 10 years, Mm. so I think that that responsibility and the volume of that title is way different than what a lot of other people do in their respective titles. And I know that this woman, Felicia, from researching, has gone through her own sexual trauma. So she shared that with the Washington Post and made it very clear to everybody that this was her story she was sharing. So I understand the perspective and lens she's coming from by tweeting out that article and saying, remember, this, this happened in Kobe Bryant's life. I know that her point was that I need to share the totality of Kobe's story and say that he's just a man with flaws. But she didn't do that. She tweeted out the link with no context. Mm. And to me, that is not the journalistic integrity that you're taught to do. Mind you, she is a political reporter for the Washington Post. So she's not even the sports reporter or anyone who does the daily news. So she stepped outside of her zone for reporting and also did this. And then she tried to basically condemn his legacy in a way. If she wanted to write that story, there are people out there who have beautifully written Kobe Bryant's story and said he is a complicated man with a complicated legacy. There's even one journalist named Gilly 
Jillian Sheldon, who extensively reported on Kobe Bryant's case in 2003, and she talked about how she was in Colorado for six weeks following that case and said, how can we use someone's worst day on this earth as a referendum of their character in totality? You cannot do that. And so, you know, the essence of a human being is having flaws, and if we don't allow that space, I mean, TMZ is disgusting that they were the reason that Vanessa Bryant found out her husband died. Uh. The LAPD said that. TMZ is the one that broke the news. So we're in a space where media where you can attack a blue ivy that's a seven-year-old child, and a journalist who has that title of objectivity is saying, you're an ugly little girl. I just think we need to step back, pull back the curtain, see what we did in this Kobe situation, specifically media journalists, and just do better. She was not playing around with that. She was 100% right, and um, I agree with her. There's sometimes with, you know, journalists, and people complain about this all the time, but sometimes they mix it. Now, I'm a commentator. I'm not a reporter, so I don't purport to be objective about anything, <laughs> right? I'm a, I'm a, I give my analysis, but I come from a point of view. So people sometimes who criticize me when I come from a point of view say, oh, what kind of journalist? I'm not a journalist. So I'm paid to give my point of view. But for those who are supposed to be objective reporters, you do have to do better when it comes to certain things like that. And Lindsey Granger was 100% right. Here's the conclusion of her comments. It's our job to objectively report the news. I know that that would be tough if you're someone who survived sexual assault. But when I'm looking at this story, she didn't give the story any context. And she got upset that she was being attacked on Twitter for tweeting a link that basically was condemning Kobe's character and accusing him of rape. But I think her job as a journalist was to put that in context. You have the responsibility and you need to have the journalistic acumen to write the full story. Go to the Washington Post and say, this man is a nuanced character. This man has a detailed, layered history that we need to discuss. But don't just tweet that out and be the political reporter for the Washington Post and tweet that and leave it there because you're leaving yourself open to the attacks that you're now receiving. And so whether or not she should be fired, you know, I think that she should be put on leave like she was. I think it's inappropriate because we're in a time where we don't know what journalism is, is anymore. We have our president that attacks journalists. We have TMZ that broke the news to Vanessa Bryant that her husband passed away. You know, what are we doing now that we need to look at ourselves, people who call themselves journalists? We have journalists attacking a seven-year-old child, which is Blue Ivy, and we look at them calling out her characteristics. We need to do better all together as journalists. And I look at this woman and I say it was your responsibility just to do better and give it more time than two hours after the man passes away to say what you think about him if it's negative. And, you know, don't hide behind somebody else's article. I, I stand behind a journalist named Jillian Sheldon. She sat at that Kobe trial for six weeks. She followed it in Colorado, in and out, stayed there, interviewed all the lawyers, interviewed the woman who was accusing him. And she said, how can we use someone's worst day on this earth as a referendum in the, on their character in totality? And we can't because just like Kobe, we all have flaws and we're all layered individuals. And we've seen this story time and time again, too many times when it's a black man and a white woman that's an accuser, when that's the story and it goes down and he just goes and gets convicted by the public jury. And we've seen the story too many times where women who are who have been sexually assaulted cannot give their voice to the public and give, are not given the space they need to share their story. So this is a complicated thing to talk about, but I really think that as a journalist, if you're going to take that name and that stance and that dignity of a position, you should probably do do it properly and just try to tell the complicated story with as much care as possible. And that goes for everybody involved in this Kobe situation. Amen. Moving on. Um, a couple other things before I get into my comments about what's happening in the Senate. Uh, this whole incident with the uh, missile attack on our troops in Iraq, the Iran missile attack, where Donald Trump claimed that there were no casualties, it was all good, nothing happened. They just, you know, sent uh, some some missiles somewhere that 
that landed in the desert and only there was only property damage or whatever. They tried to play it down that there was no no harm to our troops. But it keeps coming out now that more and more troops were actually hurt. And this pisses me off because, again, Donald Trump continues to use our military men and women as props, political props for him and his agenda. And I can't take it. Um, you know, people look at him and go, oh, his supporters. Oh, he loves the military and and he supports our military. No, no, he doesn't. Remember, this is the same guy that got caught for taking money on behalf of veterans. He's supposed to give to veterans charities. Remember that four years ago during the election and the money ended up going to his election campaign. It was completely fraudulent. Um, he got caught, was ordered to pay money back uh, as a result of that. And, you know, it wasn't until a intrepid Washington Post reporter and David Farenthold, who ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize as a result of his coverage of Trump's charities, the fraudulent activities of it all. But anyway, it wasn't until he brought it up four months after that fundraiser in 2016, where he's like, where's the check for these organizations you claim that you were supporting? Oh, then all of a sudden Trump wrote a check for it. But it was, um, you know, the whole thing was just, uh, it was BS, like most of what Trump does. And he uses the military as props. But yet he he can get away with you know going after John McCain, going after Gold Star families. I mean, we already know how Trump what Trump really thinks. But when he keeps but he but he likes to have the military there to make him look tough and strong and oh we have these big beautiful tanks and and our troops and, and just it's oh he's just so god awful. And um, I'm starting to read the book Very Stable Genius by uh, Carol Lennig and um, Phil Rucker. That's it. That's out. The Washington Post reporters. And I mentioned this last week about how they an excerpt from the book talked about his experience with Mattis and um, who it was Mattis, Gary Cohn and uh, oh, the Joint Chiefs. Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, they were in the Pentagon trying to give Trump a briefing in 2017 because he was so ignorant about world affairs and just the basics about our alliances and NATO and the importance of some of these strategic partnerships. They tried to give him a tutorial. Trump couldn't keep focused and got pissed off about it and didn't understand stuff and started to calling them dopes and babies and said that he would never go to war with any of these people because they're losers. Yeah. Okay. This is the guy that, that, that these Trump supporters hold up as being a wonderful commander in chief, the silver spoon draft dodger who used bone spurs as an excuse to get out of serving in the military in, the, in Vietnam. Come on. I can't with this guy. <laughs> I have no patience for it. But anyway, he misrepresented what happened in Iraq. Yes, our guys got hurt. And it was now, we now find out, well, a couple of weeks ago that it was 30, I think 32 or 33 traumatic brain injuries and some had to be airlifted to medical units in Germany. Some are back home in the States. And, and this is all getting swept under the rug. And Trump supporters, I actually argued with people on my mom's Facebook page. I don't know why my mom keeps these people around. She says it's to keep her brain sharp to argue with these Trump people. But it's so frustrating. I get it because you want to see how far they'll actually go. But um, he, uh, one of the Trump supporters made excuses for this too. Well, it, they, nobody died. I mean, they know what they're getting into. There's just, it's just some, you know, Trump actually poo-pooed it and said, oh, they had some headaches when it was brought to his attention that, well, actually there were some injured, you know, military men and women. Oh, they had some headaches, I heard. How dare he diminish that? And his supporters did the same thing. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's manageable was what one of them said that I argued with. I went off on this person. Manageable? Oh. So, 
yeah, tell that to the thousands of, of service members who commit suicide every year because they are suffering from traumatic brain injuries and, and PTSD that develops from that. I mean, it's just manageable. How dare these people just dismiss this as no big deal just because they, I mean, are they that ignorant because someone didn't lose a limb or their, you know, their legs didn't get blown off that they, they think that it's not a, a, a legitimate casualty, an injury. Oh, well, so what, you know, you got a headache. Come on, man. I can't. Well, now we find out, um, the headline in stars and stripes, which is a military publication, 64 U.S. troops suffered traumatic brain injuries from Iranian missile attack as casualty totals continue to balloon. They're not being honest with us. And the Pentagon's being put in the middle of this because they don't want to go against the commander in chief. But you know there are people inside the Pentagon and the Department of Defense that are furious over the way this is being handled. Technically, if you're injured enough to be pulled off duty for more than 48 hours, you're eligible for a Purple Heart. So what are they going to do with these people who all of these folks, are they, are they going to be denied their purple hearts because of a political cover-up because they don't want to embarrass the president because he's a jackass who can't keep his mouth shut and, you know, decides that he, uh, it's more important to project strength than the truth of what our troops actually went through. Could you imagine if Obama had done this? Come on. So I just wanted to give an update on that. They're still misrepresenting, lying about what happened in that missile attack, that, that Iranian missile attack against our troops a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Something else that, uh, a theory that was floated out there, I don't know how true it is or not, but I think it's plausible. Anything's plausible with these bastards. Is this whole thing with, with John Bolton, which is something else that came out um, last weekend. I mean, last weekend was a nuts... <laughs> Uh, news weekend. You had the Bolton book excerpts come out. You had the Lev Parnas video come out of this hour and a half dinner that Lev Parnas uh, spent with Trump and the stuff he was talking about in Ukraine. And I mean, Lev Parnas keeps coming with the receipts. Um, Again, because of the impeachment, a lot of this is getting swept under the rug, but this is significant. No wonder senators don't want further witnesses. They know but as they deny witnesses, that's not going to stop information from coming out. So they're the ones who are going to look like idiots when more and more stuff comes out and shows how corrupt Trump actually is. And these these guys decided, these cowards decided to acquit him and not even listen to witnesses. The fact that they, uh, Bolton, right, with his book. Now, I have mixed feelings about the way John Bolton has handled all of this, clearly. As, as national security advisor, he had a unique perch from which to watch all of this go on. He was a first-hand fact witness. Excerpts leaked from his book that, in fact, yes, Trump told him that the military aid to Ukraine was, in fact, conditioned on an investigation into the Bidens. That completely dispenses with the main defense that the Trump team was using, that this was all about Trump's legitimate concern about corruption. We all knew that's bullshit. And... Their excuse was, well, the House didn't have any fact witnesses. All those people, the career diplomats and all of those credible people who testified in front of the House impeachment committee, 17 of them, well, they all was hearsay. They weren't firsthand witnesses. They never heard the president actually say it to them, except for David Holmes, who overheard the conversation when uh, with uh, Sondland, right, in Kiev in the restaurant. But no, no, we're going to dismiss all that. Well, here John Bolton said, I'm willing to testify if I'm subpoenaed. Then his book 
excerpts get, quote, leaked. This is all on purpose because Bolton's trying to play a game. He's, he's a savvy political guy. He's been around a long time. And he was well-respected within Republican circles as a tough hawk on Iran and other things. So some people are thinking that, we've, oh, we found out that, that his book went to the White House to be vetted. And this happens when people in the national, national security space or law enforcement space write books after they leave public service. They have to have the book reviewed to make sure that it doesn't reveal any classified information. That's routine. So Bolton did that. He turned his manuscript over to the office in the White House. They're supposed to be career people, not political people, by the way, that do these reviews. So he did that. The letter, his lawyer released a letter that showed when they did it, which was December 30th. They said, hey, listen, this is the man, unpublished manuscript. We're, sending, we're submitting it for review to make sure that there's nothing in here that reveals any you know, classified stuff. Uh, have it back to us in 30 days. Well, coincidentally, it was only a few days later that the whole Iran missile attack thing happened, right? We launched bombs and killed Soleimani. The Iranians turn around and retaliate, and all of that went on. Only a couple days after that. So the theory is that did Trump, in fact, see this manuscript? Did he find out about it? Or someone saw it who wasn't supposed to. They found out about the how damaging the information was in it from Bolton about his experience with Trump, about what happened with Ukraine, so they decided to try to throw him a bone and, um, you know, kill the top commander in, in, in Iran to maybe placate Bolton because he's such a hawk on Iran. Maybe. I don't know. Was that what they were doing? Because the, the timing of the attack on Soleimani is still something that has yet to be resolved. There were multiple excuses and answers and, well, it was because of this and that. But no, they never really answered why now. Well, maybe we have that answer. Why now? Call me cynical. I don't know. But I think they were trying to prevent Bolton from testifying, trying to throw him a bone. I think that's plausible. That also explains why Mitch McConnell was in a rush to get this over with really quickly and making sure there were no witnesses because they had a heads up about what was in Bolton's book and this could potentially be a problem. I don't know. Maybe. Because imagine if Nancy Pelosi hadn't held on to the impeachment articles. Um, and imagine if, if uh, McConnell was able to just turn around and get a dismissal and say, oh, it's over with, We're, we'll quit them and keep it moving. A lot of this wouldn't have come out. Or it would have, but we wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't have had a potential effect on the, on the impeachment trial. Well, even with all of that information coming out in the last week, it started to, to ruffle some feathers in the, in the Republican side of the Senate. And the Wall Street Journal gave a really good TikTok of what happened from when the Bolton news broke on last Sunday to ultimately McConnell managing this, the crisis and getting all of his senators to fall in line and vote down witnesses, except for two, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins. I've been very critical of Susan Collins because I feel she's so wishy-washy, I can't stand it. She's insufferable that way. But at least she finally did the right thing. Good for her. She's in a tough re-election campaign up here in Maine. So I guess she had no choice. But Murkowski and uh, Alexander, they were really the other two main Republican votes that we weren't sure which way they were going to go. Ultimately, they sided with McConnell and Trump, which was just <sighs> beyond infuriating. It really was. But the Wall Street Journal, the TikTok about how McConnell managed it, 
The fact that Mitch McConnell was working in concert with the White House the entire time is just unimaginable. They take an oath to be impartial jurors. What are they do? What was McConnell doing coordinating this? He wasn't impartial. He went into this already saying, look, yeah, I'm not impartial. I'm working with the White House. We're going to get him acquitted. So this is all just a farce, really. How is this fair? You know, there have been over 30 impeachment trials in history, most of them judges, but impeachment trials nonetheless. Every single one of them has had witnesses. This is the first time ever in history, no witnesses in an impeachment trial. There were witnesses in Andrew Johnson's impeachment trial in 1858, 1868. There were were, uh, witnesses for Nixon. I mean, even though it didn't go to a trial because he resigned, had enough decency to resign first, but he, even Nixon didn't stop people from testifying this way, the way this, this administration has. And there were witnesses even in the Clinton trial. So, you know, it's unbelievable that these Senate Republicans really were just such cowards that they decided to throw the Constitution away, allow this president to get away with murder, proverbially. And now what? Marco Rubio, who I'm just over, I'm so over him. I'm ashamed that I supported him in 2016. This is how he turned out. Um, he, even he came out and said now, oh, well, what the president did was inappropriate, but didn't rise to the level of impeachment. It would divide the country. Or actually, I think Rubio said that it was impeachable. Let me, I stand corrected. Rubio said that, yes, what the president do, did, his actions were impeachable, but removing him would be more detrimental to the country. Really? Um, Alexander, go, I don't, I'm not reading his statement either, or Mikowski's at this point verbatim. Go Google them because I just, I'm over them. But the essence of, of Lamar Alexander, senator from Tennessee, who's been in Republican politics for over 50 years, he was education secretary under Bush at one point, or Reagan. Um, he was the governor of Tennessee, senator now. He ran for president a couple times. And he's also BFFs. He's a BFF with Mitch McConnell. Lamar Alexander is retiring. So people thought that he might be the fourth vote to get the witnesses, right? He's retiring. He doesn't have to face voters anymore. Maybe he would actually do the right thing. God forbid. Well, he didn't. He is BFFs with Mitch McConnell. They've been friends for over 50 freaking years. There was no way he was going to go against his buddy. And Mitch McConnell had an hour and a half dinner with him on Thursday and ultimately convinced him to vote with them. And Alexander came out with this statement about how the Democrats proved their case. Yeah, wow, did they? But it's ultimately not impeachable and it doesn't rise to the level of impeachable offenses and it would be more divisive to the country if the president was removed. Really? What a cop-out. Same thing with Murkowski. She's another one. Wishy-washy. She ended up coming down because she didn't uh, on, on the side of, of Trump because she didn't want to be the, 50, the 50th vote, the tie vote, which would have meant that the chief justice would have had to be the tiebreaker. And then he had come out and said that he was not going to get involved. He was not going to be the tiebreaker. So Murkowski didn't want to be caught up in that and decided that she was going to blame it on process. 
oh, the House Democrats didn't complete their investigation. They didn't do their job. They should have done this. They should have subpoenaed Bolton and then and blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's what you're pearl clutching over? Process? The White House already said they were going to sue and and try to stop Bolton. The Democrats made the decision. They did not want to tie it up in court for months and months on end. And they, you know, come on. Process? What? I mean, just weak cop-out arguments. Meanwhile, they're letting the president of the United States get away with abuse of power. And if this is not impeachable, I don't know what is. Tim Alberta, who is a... um, an author and a writer for Politico, he wrote a really good book called American Carnage. I encourage everyone to read it because if you really want insight into kind of what the hell happened to Republicans, he did. He does an excellent job talking about kind of how Republic, the Republican Party got to become this, this Trump party. And, and it's a really good book, American Carnage by Tim Alberta. I should really get him on the podcast, um, making a mental note. Um, but he tweeted uh, earlier this week about you know, if people want to know why uh, Lamar Alexander and others continue to succumb to Trump and what he's doing, um, he I'm going to read his his uh, his thread about this because I think it's it's interesting. This is from Tim Alberta. You can follow him on Twitter at Tim Alberta. A thought on Lamar Alexander. His retirement is less relevant than you might think. Trump's grip on the GOP has implications far beyond elected office. Lamar is looking forward to a life after politics, and he knows it will be complicated by any break with Trump over impeachment. He goes on to say, I've spent a lot of time with retired and retiring congressional Republicans since 2016. Most feel zero sense of liberation to bash Trump on the way out. If anything, they're even more cowed and cautious fearing that being out of favor with the POTUS and his party limits their earning power. And it's not just about the money. I've had numerous retiring Republicans talk warily, sometimes fearfully, about the, quote, cult of Trump supporters back home. They worry about harassment of their families, loss of standing in local communities, estranged relationships, etc. So it's bigger than just you know, fear of Trump and getting reelected. People are worried about these Trump cult supporters that are threatening their families and harassing them. That's insane. It's crazy that that should even have to be part of the calculus here. He goes on to say, if you think that this is a bunch of weak ass excuse making, excuse making from people who ought to rise above it and do what they think is right. Well, no argument here. I'm just explaining the reality for these Republicans. They feel trapped, most of them, and retirement isn't the escape you might think. This is why, even while people are justifiably angry that the likes of Paul Ryan didn't speak out forcefully, quote, while he was in office, they should appreciate that. He can be, oh, they should appreciate that be found, that he found his voice in retirement. It's not easy to cross Donald Trump the way Ryan did. If it was, many more would do it. Yeah, Paul Ryan's been a little more outspoken now that he's out of office. That's, that is true. I've heard for months that Lamar Alexander might, just might, take out three years of disgust with Trump during the impeachment hearing. Maybe he would. But the idea that he's got nothing to lose, I'm telling you, it's a foreign concept to these Republicans. So he tweeted this before Lamar Alexander actually came out and said, no, I'm not voting for any more witnesses. 
If you want to fully understand this phenomenon, not just what happened to the Republican Party, but why it happened, there's a book I strongly recommend. <laughs> a little plug for his book that I just said, American Carnage. But I think it's in, that's instructive for people to know that this is what's going on for some of these Republicans. Very interesting. Very interesting that uh, Trump has this kind of hole in the party and, and what, it, what it's done. Um, I just... It's tough, but we can't give up. We cannot give up. We have to keep fighting this. This is not normal. And yes, by the time this airs, um, the we'll pretty much know that the acquittal is pending. Um, it's the vote is scheduled for Wednesday coming up, um, February fifth, and this part of it'll be over. But God knows what happens between now and then. Could John Bolton could come out and just give an interview? I mean, just give an interview, damn it, already, and tell what the hell happened. The American people deserve to know. Screw the damn book deal already with this. Don't think, I mean, it, the Justice Department might go after Bolton. I don't put anything past Bill Barr and, and Donald Trump trying to ruin Bolton's life now for telling the truth. General John Kelly, by the way, who did not get along with Bolton when they worked together in the White House, he came out and said, I believe John Bolton. Fox News had a hissy fit. They started calling Bolton a, a tool of the Democratic left. They they left no stone unturned trying to uh, cast aspersions on John Bolton now, who was a conservative hero in the foreign policy space up until he wasn't when he decided to speak the truth about Donald Trump. There's no limits to where these people, what, what low these, people's will, these people will go to, to a character assassinate anyone who speaks out about Donald Trump. It's nuts. Nuts. But we have to move forward and um, keep fighting this and, you know, take him out of the ballot box if that's what's next. But this impeachment trial has been a sham. The fact no witnesses were allowed is, is unprecedented. And 75% of the American people said that they wanted witnesses. Um, and Mitch McConnell and the rest of the Republicans were too scared of what might happen to actually do what the people want, which is what they're elected to do. So I hope every one of them loses <laughs> at this point. The Tillises, the McSallies, the, all the ones that are in these tight races, I hope you all pay a price for being cowards. Well, oh, one last thing before I bring in Joe Lockhart, former Clinton administration press secretary to talk about his experience and the differences between the last impeachment and this one. And he's got some pretty colorful choice words about what's going on. Just a little note, the FEC, oh, two things that came out. Um, there was a FOIA request about the, remember the whole Sharpie gate thing with Hurricane Dorian, how Trump changed the map about the direction of where the hurricane was going. Cause he misreported that it was going to Alabama when it was not never going to Alabama for the most part. Like, People were like, what? Then they brought up the Sharpie and he changed the whole thing. Remember that? Well, uh, Jason Leopold, who was a guest on the podcast a couple episodes back, issued a FOIA, uh, filed a FOIA request. He's like the king of FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. That's what FOIA stands for. To get the communications between NOAA and uh, what was going during that time to find out what the hell was going on. And it comes come to find out that NOAA officials were furious about Trump and the Sharpiegate thing and his tweet, Twitter, uh, tweets about it and misrepresenting where the hurricane was going. Furious. Uh, I, I encourage you to check out Jason's Twitter feed and you'll see the documents from the, the FOIA request or the actual email conversations between 
FOIA, um, I mean, between the NOAA administration officials, very upset by the president's behavior and how he politicized the hurricane. There's that. The other thing, FEC, the Federal Election Commission, you have to quarterly file these reports about how you spend your money in campaigns with the Federal Election Committee. And um, the latest FEC filing for the fourth quarter shows that the Trump re-election campaign spent $194,000 at Trump businesses, Trump on Trump family members uh, in one quarter alone. Almost $200,000 went to Trump businesses and family members from the, from the campaign coffers. That's people who donate money. Yeah, $1.8 million in the last couple quarters have gone to Trump businesses and family members directly from campaign donations. So I don't want to hear it from anyone that Trump isn't profiting off the presidency. That doesn't count the money that goes, that the Secret Service pays when they are at Mar-a-Lago and the money that's spent when they're at Trump properties and all the money that is spent by um, by taxpayers for him to go golf for 30% of his time in office. So yeah, profiting off the presidency. That's just one aspect of it. It's outrageous. Speaking of outrageous, time to bring in former Clinton press secretary, Joe Lockhart, to talk about the differences between the Clinton impeachment and Trump's. of Honestly Speaking with Tara, I'm pleased to bring in former Clinton press secretary, Joe Lockhart. Um, Not only did he do communications for President Bill Clinton while he was going through the impeachment trial of his life in the 90s, but he's also worked comms for the NFL, Facebook. He's the host of the Words Matter podcast, and he is a CNN political analyst and my colleague as well over at CNN. Joe Lockhart, thank you for joining me. Glad to be here. So I I just had to get you on because I'm fascinated by the comparisons between this impeachment trial and what happened during Clinton. I lived through that in a different capacity than you did. I just graduated from college, and I have to say that my first foray into cable, Mm -hmm. national cable news, was speaking about the Clinton impeachment on BET Tonight with Tavis Smiley. And um, as you know, I'm on the other side of the aisle, so I wasn't too kind to your boss. But but it's funny how the world comes full circle. Um, As you're sitting here going through this now, another historic impeachment trial, what has been most frustrating for you to watch? Well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, you're being on the other side of the aisle, uh, because if you remember in 1998, 1999, both sides of the aisle were very critical of President Clinton. Mm -hmm. Democrats spared no um, emotion in going after the president for the mistake he made and for the the pain and suffering that he brought upon. uh, the, you know, his family, Monica Lewinsky, and the American public who had to go through all of this. Uh, but Democrats in the end came down uh, on the side of, while well, he was wrong, and they were happy he acknowledged it and apologized, but it wasn't, it didn't rise to the level of removing him. We're at a totally different place with Republicans right now. Um, they basically are making the argument 
that it's all okay, that he didn't do anything wrong. He can do it again. He can leverage our foreign policy, put an ally at a disadvantage to dig up dirt on a political opponent, and that's okay. And that was punctuated uh, yesterday uh, by Alan Dershowitz, um, who made the staggering uh, argument that the president can do whatever he wants if the president believes that his candidacy, his presidency is in the national interest and who he's running against is not, and he can do whatever he wants. So I think that is a, you know, a, a big difference. Um, and it's, you know, it's an absurd notion for a lawyer to make, uh, and it's a dangerous position for Republicans to take that the president can do anything he wants. That that Alan Dershowitz defense was, I mean, jaw dropping, I think, to a lot of people, including the Republican senators, I think, who were sitting there listening to this. They cannot in good conscience think that what Alan Dershowitz was was trying to defend is good for the country moving forward. We've already seen some try try to distance themselves from that thought process, saying, well, not quite. But we still don't think what Trump did was impeachable. But this Alan Dershowitz thing, I mean, that's very different than 1998-99 Alan Dershowitz, as I'm sure you remember, um, where he had a completely different view. It's uh, as well as Ken Starr, who I'm sure you had to watch with a certain sense of irony going, is this the same guy that came after President Clinton for you know, lying about a, a sexual affair and, and claiming that the, you know, that was going to be the end of the presidency if he wasn't impeached. I mean, the Ken Starr hypocrisy in this can't be lost on you either. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the only good thing about Ken Starr's testimony was um, if my head didn't explode during that 45 minutes, it will never explode. So I'm pretty <laughs> confident that the gray matter is going to stay within the skull going forward. I mean, you know, Starr was... Star acted the way Star acted in 1998, which is projecting a self-righteous um, uh, sort of self-indulgent that I know better than everyone uh, and no one has the right to question me uh, and that my virtues trump your virtues. Um, and his testimony this time, again, was exactly the opposite, but it had the same tone which was condescending and uh, belittling of anyone who was not as smart as him. Uh, but a lot of smart people listened to it and thought, you know, he, he, he's either trying to cleanse his soul without, but doing it in a way where he took no responsibility for bringing America the era of impeachment. Um, he right. delivered... He delivered in his report, you know, even if Republicans in the House were, um, you know, committed to their country and not highly partisan, um, which is not true because they weren't. But even if they were, they had no choice with the way Ken Starr wrote his report, but to impeach. He, he basically wrote the report in a way that said, you, you know, you must impeach this president. And he was very direct about it. And then, you know, 20 years later, he argues about, you know, and, and almost like he wasn't there in 1998, that, that the partisanship of our politics has brought us to this era of impeachment. It, you know, it was, it was stunning 
Um, right, like he had no uh, role first, whatsoever. Like that. Yeah, but but when about. I remembered, yeah, but I but when I remembered, you know, the the daily lectures at the end of his driveway, taking his garbage out, mm-hmm. I remembered that's what Ken Starr is. You know, he's, um, you know, to to use um, uh, a colorful phrase, he's just a pompous ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that fits right in with most of the other characters in this in this saga, unfortunately. Yeah. Which didn't surprise me when he was chosen because Trump likes to have people like that. It doesn't matter whether I mean, and Ken Starr is not a dumb guy. He's smart, but it's amazing how their ambition has same thing with Dershowitz. It just seems as though their egos and their ambition and desire to be relevant has uh, superseded any sense of moral clarity um, or even good lawyering at this point. Um, And it's tarnished. Well, and and and. yeah, and and they want us to believe, particularly Star, that he's better than us, that he's more virtuous than us. And the fact of the matter is, since he left um, the independent counsel job, uh, he has, among other things, gone to Baylor University and gotten fired because he turned a blind eye uh, to sexual assault and rape by football players. That's right. He even took the side of the football players. And this is this is Waco, Texas, and they still threw him out. He also then represented Jeffrey Epstein, who is about as evil a person as this country has seen in a generation. And what does he have in common there with Alan Dershowitz? Dershowitz was on the uh, defense team also. So these guys who come in and tell us they're better than us and they're holier than thou, uh, they're generally the ones that if you scratch the surface, um, uh, you find that they're not. <laughs> they're, yeah. You know, that this is projecting an image to cover up what they're really about. That's for, that's for sure. Um, another, another issue, too, with Ken Starr and the way he handled the independent counsel role, that basically led <laughs> to the Congress um, letting that, that statute sunset. Congress said, we're not doing this again with someone as activist as he was and how much control he had. And that's why you have a special counsel now as opposed to an independent counsel, right? It's pretty much one of the uh, the uh, byproducts of the way Ken Starr handled impeachment. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the Congress, in a bipartisan way, both Republicans and Democrats, um, recognized the threat. The Republicans were sitting there saying, we're going to hold the White House again at some point, and we can't have out-of-control prosecutors. Um, and, you know, it's the, the result was a special counsel statute that's weaker and a special counsel in the, in the form of Mueller who overcorrected in um, not being as forceful as he should have been with Congress about what their duty was. Ken Starr went to Congress and said, you have no choice but to impeach the president. Uh, Bob Mueller went up there and said, here's a bunch of facts. You guys do what you want. Um, yeah, you know, it, there's, the a, there's, yeah, there, there, there's a middle ground here where I hope someday we find. Uh, I agree. When, when I watched Mueller testify, I thought about the Ken Starr comparison, and it, and it seemed as though Mueller just... The overcorrection was was painful because at a time like now, we really needed Mueller to to, to make some conclusive statements. Just just you know, it was so frustrating because you can't you have to spoon feed people nowadays. You can't leave it up to a what I feel is a corrupt Senate 
with under McConnell's leadership and just how um, intellectually dishonest the Republican Party has become, Mueller really needs to come in and say, listen, guys, this is what should happen. I'll leave it up to you, but these are the conclusions we came to. And then it would have left them no choice or at least let them defend going against those conclusions. But he chose not to do it. And I think the image of Ken Starr and what he did and how he testified was definitely in Mueller's calculus. I, I, I can't imagine that it wasn't. And he just didn't want to be that guy. And here we are, unfortunately, now. Um, yeah, yeah, and the one thing you know, and the one thing that um, should have made, given him extra incentive was the dishonest characterization that Bill Barr gave of the report yes. a week before the report came out. Yes, and you know anyone anyone who doesn't think that that tainted the overall report is not being honest. For sure. That should have been an in indication to Mueller that this was not going to be a, a, a an honest uh, that Barr wasn't going to be an honest broker here, and uh, we saw a little bit of that in the beginning before he testified, right after the report came out, where they had to clarify a couple things. But that was as far as it went, and it still left enough for the Trump folks to pervert it into you know somehow it was beneficial to them, which is just nuts. Um, one other thing that I think it's important for people who may not have lived through the Clinton impeachment era the way we did, um, you started to talk about how Democrats and Republicans, there was a bipartisan sense that Bill Clinton, yeah, he did something wrong. And then there was a um, valid argument about whether that rose to the level of impeachment or not. And I will admit, looking back in hindsight, that it probably did not. And the position that I had taken at the time uh, was a lot more hardcore partisan uh, because I was young and hadn't lived life yet. <laughs> uh, you can't have a president, you know, he perjured himself. And I get that. I get those arguments. But when you look now at what we've allowed, compare, I mean, what Clinton did was nothing compared to as far as abuse of power that affected the office is nothing compared to what what Donald Trump is doing now. And listening to Republicans try to make this argument that somehow it's the same and that what he's doing is, oh, this doesn't matter. It does matter. And I, I think that the, the number of Republicans and Democrats that were on the same side in this, I mean, there were Democrats that voted for articles of, of impeachment, uh, a couple dozen, right? Yeah, no, there were, there were definitely something like 45 that, um, voted to authorize the impeachment. Uh, remember, this time there was not a single Republican that voted to authorize. Right. And at the end of the day, there were definitely uh, a dozen or so uh, Democrats voting for the actual articles. Yeah. Um, and there was and there was bipartisan um, agreement on the rules. Can you talk a little bit about how that worked out? Because I think people don't realize how functioning the Senate actually was back then compared to now. I mean, Mitch McConnell is really running the Senate like a complete dictator. And it wasn't quite like that under Daschle back then, right? It was Daschle. And Daschle and Trenlot. Right. Um, it, and Trenlot was, you know, running the show. Um, uh, it was... Uh, as, as you know, the the exact 180 degree opposite of how it ran. Um, you know, we at the White House made clear uh, on a regular basis what we thought was fair. The House managers uh, made clear what they thought was fair. Those were two very different things. And basically, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle told both sides to get lost. 
They said, we've listened to what you want. This is something that the Senate decides, not the White House, not the House. And they took 100 senators into a private room, the old Senate chamber, and kept them in the room so they had an agreement on rules. Uh, and that passed 100 to nothing. There's not a single Republican, not a single Democrat who said, I can't live with these rules. Both the House managers and the White House were upset by the rules. I, I went to the podium um, and said, you know, fairness has gone out the window today. Um, and, 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 and I think we believed it. It ended up working out fairly well for, for, for the White House. But we thought that there were some things in there that were really unfair. Um, you know, we, we spent so much time and we spent so much time talking about witnesses. And this is one of those comparisons that really has to be made. But you'll never hear this from a Republican. Uh, one of the reasons that we opposed having live witnesses is every witness had already appeared before the grand jury. Every witness testimony was already in the star report. There was no real reason to bring people back in. But the fact of the matter is that the Senate had the final word and they did bring three witnesses back in. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, those witnesses didn't turn out very well for the House managers. Um, you know, it was bad luck for them or bad lawyering or bad planning. But there was no um, there was no stone that was unturned. There was no new information that needed to be considered. Uh, for the Senate trial to go forward. We're in the exact opposite position right now. Yeah, this we, is an important know, the, point. I'm they, glad you're making it because I don't think people really understand yes. this. It cannot be emphasized enough. During the Clinton impeachment, yeah, and, there had already yeah. been an investigation, comprehensive. The star, the independent counsel did this first. Whereas in this case, the Justice Department under Bill Barr said, no, there's nothing to see here when they were presented with the whistleblower report and the inspector general, the IG for the um, uh, DNI said, uh, this is credible and urgent. And the Justice Department said, no, nothing to see here. So that forced the House to do the investigation that Ken Starr had already done. So that's why, right. right? That's why the having bringing new witnesses and all this new information that keeps coming out now in real time. That's why that's happening. The Clinton impeachment and that star investigation. How many years did that go on for? The impeachment was uh, different. I mean, like the investigation itself that went on for years, didn't it? Two different. Well, the, the investigation. Yeah, the investigation. There were three different independent counsels right. uh, over a six-year period. Um, that we're looking at everything from uh, land investment in Arkansas to the suicide of Vince Foster to um, uh, how the White House handled uh, security clearances to how the White House handled uh, travel arrangements for reporters uh, to eventually, uh, you know, setting on um, – the relationship the president had with an intern. Uh, and, you know, we we now know that story. Right. That's right. So for people to say, for the Republicans to claim and for the Trump defense team to claim that there's no need for witnesses now because the House should have done their job and because they didn't call X, Y, and Z witnesses or subpoena them and drag it out through the courts, somehow then that means that we don't need to have it now. That, that is an absurd argument, and, and it's really an incomplete picture of why the House didn't get these witnesses and why th- this is still kind of move, the moving parts are still going on, because we didn't have an investigation by the Justice Department the way that they did under Clinton, right? 
Right. There was there was nothing. You know, when the White when the Clinton White House said, you know, we don't really need these witnesses. It wasn't to keep information from the senators. It was to keep the trial from turning into a circus, uh, which is what some of the House managers wanted to do. They wanted to show Monica Lewinsky one more time explaining her relationship with the president, what she did, what they did. You know, one more time, you know, just, you know, to try to titillate the public and uh, uh, you rekindle interest in this. Uh, again, it ended up not working. Um, and. Uh, that was a good thing. The interesting thing is, you know, and this White House is doing, has used every uh, resource available to them to keep information from the Senate and from the House. Uh, look at innocent persons um, strategy. Uh, we have to wonder what they're hiding. Uh, we have a fairly good idea what they're hiding, uh, but it looks like at this point we may never see it or not see it in a timely way. But I think the Dershowitz argument, um, in addition to nutty, um, has bolstered the Democrats' case. It has raised the the meaning of this fight we're having over witnesses. Because if you believe what what Dershowitz says, the president can do whatever he wants uh, and – and Trump and get away that. with it as long as it's he yeah. said that right this and article, he just discovered he, somebody he, must have told him last summer about article two and he you know he said oh there's this article two that in the constitution it lets me do whatever i want as president i mean he says the quiet yeah. things out loud all the time <laughs> yeah so if this is just about you know if, if this is just about a phone call and no harm, no foul. The the money got there. Everybody take a deep breath and relax. That's one thing for a Republican to say that. But then when Dershowitz comes out and says, oh, it doesn't matter whether there was no harm. You can do harm. You can do whatever you want if you're president. I think that really puts pressure on Republicans. And I think having a night to sleep on that, and they're going to get hammered on it today. I, uh, I You just know that uh, in the question and answer period. Um, I, I think they'll, they they are going to rue the day. Someone came up with the idea of bringing Dershowitz in. Well, um, I, I think that as this as as this unfolds, that um, Republicans, the, the institutionalists, if there are still a, a few in the Senate, are really going to have to search hard, you know, far and wide to justify not permitting witnesses. I think Mitch McConnell's scared to death of bringing John Bolton and others in because they know that that it will bolster the case. I mean, when when Bolton said this week, um, well, his book, when we found out that in his book, he said, yeah, Trump said we're holding up the Ukraine money until we get the investigation into the Bidens. And then John Kelly, General John Kelly, Trump's former chief of staff, came out and said, yeah, I believe John Bolton. I find McConnell's not dumb. He knows that if Bolton goes up there and testifies, that opens up Pandora's box to have other credible people like John Kelly come out publicly and say, yeah, uh, we believe them, not Trump. And now what? And then when, you know, it affects the perhaps the psyche of the American people and these senators, and then now McConnell's got a problem. If he pushes this through, the faster he gets it over with, the faster that 
it, you know, the American people can't go, wait, what happened now? Who said what? <laughs> Maybe we should pay attention to this. Uh, do you think, do you, well, by the time this airs, we'll probably already have had the vote or about to have the vote on, on witnesses. What is you? Mm-hmm. What is your over under? Do you do do you think that um, it's possible that we'll get witnesses? I don't know. I'm fifty. I, 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 yeah, I I don't think there'll be witnesses. Um, I don't think there's enough courage um, in the United States Senate on in the Republican caucus to get at the truth. Uh, I, and I, you know, I'm taken by the you know you you reference institutionalists. Um, there are no institutionalists left on the Republican side. And comparing this to 1999, in 1999, the mantle of institutionalism sat in the office of Robert Byrd. He was no longer the majority leader, but nothing happened in the Senate without Robert Byrd, you know, putting his stamp on it. Make, um, make way for liberty. And we, we at the White House worked very hard. At, at a certain point, it looked like Robert Byrd was going to vote for impeachment. And that, that brought an enormous new set of problems for the White House. And um, I think Senator Daschle and others spent a lot of time talking to him. And um, he did come around, and he, but he came around – uh, not because he liked Clinton more or he wanted Clinton to stay president. He came around because he thought it was the duty of the Senate to judge the severity of the crime and whether this rose to the level of impeachment. And that's why. I mean, again, he he's the person who introduced the motion to dismiss, which failed, but it sent a very strong signal that the Democratic caucus um, was going to take a unified position uh, going in, into the vote. Um, institutionalism institutionalism on the Republican side has been dying for a while, but it died um, at uh, when Merrick Garland was blocked. And if there was any question of whether it was dead, it, you know, it, it, it died again when they covered up Brett Kavanaugh's past uh, and did a sham FBI uh, investigation. There are an institute, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell is not an institutionalist and he's got nobody left in his caucus that is. Uh, that's a that's actually a good point, and um, I hadn't really thought about it in that context. And I I think you're right. We for 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 those of us who remember some of the the old guard in the Republican Senate caucus, I think of the you know the Bob Doles and um, uh, you know others, the Strom Thurmonds, and people who had been around a long time, and and where institutionalism and and the 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 world's greatest deliberative body meant something to them. And who are those statesmen now? You know, um, however you felt about their politics, but they at least, you know, the Phil Grahams, like those guys, they at least they got it as far as um, the Senate. Slade Gordon, you know, I think of all the senators of the 90s and um, yeah, those guys are gone. So I wanted to ask you about this because we were talking kind of about the how there's no more institutionalists in the Senate and uh, the way that Mitch McConnell has really run things and and how the just just how dishonest the Republicans have been with their arguments. Um, do you think though that the Democrats have done a good job messaging this with impeachment because the Clinton White House was so disciplined in their ability to message things and and the president stayed on message you guys had a war room you know you you really were able to contain that you were disciplined do you think that the Democrats have done a good job this time around with it 
Yeah, I think they have. I think, you know, led by Speaker Pelosi and uh, Chairman Schiff in particular, they've they've um, reduced this to a pretty simple message that they've repeated over and over and over again to the point where people may be bored with it, but they certainly have it ingrained in their head. And that message is that it's just not okay for the president to use the power of our government to have a foreign government investigate uh, a political rival. It's not okay for the president to use the power of the presidency for something that benefits him personally and hurts the national interest. Um, There are a hundred ways to say that. They've used them all, but that is the, the basis of a message that's easy to understand, easy to repeat. And I think it's one of the reasons why If you ask the American public, you know, we're in a situation where 51 percent of Americans want the president removed. That's unprecedented. Um, You have to go back to Nixon to see numbers like that. And you have 75 percent of Americans who think there should be witnesses. This is what um, uh, the White House and the defense team are are defying. Those are very strong numbers. Why do you think... um, I mean, it feels like the needle hasn't really moved, though, when it comes to uh, an overwhelming amount of people that think that President Trump did something wrong and should be removed. Do you think that's just where we've come as a society or or is it that that people are just fatigued with it all? I mean, I find it frustrating that more people don't understand the gravity of what's going on or they just don't care. And I think that says more about us than it does about Trump. Well, I, you know, when you look at these numbers, um, I kind of reject the idea that they haven't moved. Uh, they moved pretty uh, um, radically uh, after Ukraine's story broke. And they're not going to move any further because there's 35% of this country who believe that if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue, uh, he'd get a, he should get away with it. That person deserved to die. Yeah. You know, whoever, whoever that is. Uh, right. So when you when you have the rest of the country, when you have a um, majority of Republicans in this country saying there should be witnesses, those numbers have moved. They're just not going to move any further. There's nothing. The difference between Nixon and Trump is in the era of Nixon, um, there was no Fox News. So people got the news straight. So when they saw how you know awful it was. They turned against the president in this era. You have Fox News and, you know, Fox News is, is basically every night uh, promoting a conspiracy theory against everyone but Trump and saying that Trump is a hero. That 30 percent of the country is not going to move. There is no way to move them. So so I, re- I reject the idea that the numbers should be more dramatic. They are not going to be. But you've got two thirds of the country saying the president did something wrong. Half the country saying he should be removed and three quarters of the country saying that there should be witnesses. Those are not good numbers for the president. Yeah, fair enough. Yet his approval rating seems, according to Real Clear Politics, the average has gone up. I, I just can't. I just can't believe it. I mean, it did with with Clinton also, but in different in, in a different way, because Clinton was more um, 
much a much more likable. B the economy again was doing very well, but people the polling then it was interesting said that. You know, he relates to us. He's he he fights for us. We like him. He's a good president, but we question his moral character. And but but his overall approval went up. Bill Clinton's did. Um, I, just so such a different type of presidency under Clint, under Trump that it's it's hard to imagine that in the how much worse and how much more abusive of his power Trump is that his approval rating has actually ticked up a couple a couple of points. I, I it's yeah, but uh, you know I think you've got to put that in context. Um, uh, unless something radically changes, and I don't expect that Donald Trump will be the first president since Gallup started polling who never got to fifty percent in job That's approval. That's true. That's true. No other president has done that. Yeah. He, he has been underwater the entire time. He remains underwater. And, um, you know, again, no president in modern times as an incumbent has ever won re-election um, unless their job approval was at 49 or above. So um, they, they can, you know, they can crow all they want about how well they're doing. Uh, they're, you know, they're, I'm not saying he's not going to get reelected. I'm just saying he's not in a very strong position right now. Indeed. You brought up uh, Fox News, and, and I just wanted to ask uh, your, your thoughts on this because you're a prolific tweeter. I encourage everyone to, to follow Joe on Twitter, at Joe Lockhart. Uh, he's been live tweeting the, the impeachment hearings for the most part. Uh, he's very vocal. You're very vocal on your thoughts about the, the press secretary position in this White House. Uh, being that you occupied that role and that you used to go to the podium every day and uh, address the, the, the press corps and talk about what the administration is doing and answer the tough questions. Uh, looking at the way that that position has devolved, um, what, what do you think we'll ever get it back? Well, you know, I don't think um, if Trump wins a second term, I think we, it's, it'll be the death of it. You'll never see it again. And, you know, you know, my view is that there there are certain short term advantages to not doing it. There are days where there just aren't good answers to things, but they're long term um, doing the briefing is very advantageous uh, for the White House. Uh, it allows you, the, the White House, to drive your agenda. It's it's the most ubiquitous uh, picture of the day, you know, when the president's not out doing something. Um, but probably more importantly is it's it imposes a discipline on decision making within the White House. You you know knowing that there's a briefing at one o'clock every day forces everyone to coordinate, forces people to make decisions, forces a clarity in um, how you talk about uh, what the administration is doing, because having public support for whatever is on your agenda is critical to getting that agenda passed. Uh, it's not a popularity contest, but if your ideas aren't popular, the Congress will will dispense with them quickly. Uh, so there are a lot of advantages to doing. And I think, you know, personally, it's just a, a, an abdication of uh, the role and a, a certain cowardice on, um, on behalf of both Sarah Sanders and, and Stephanie Grisham. It's a hard job. You know, I know it's a hard job. I don't know because someone told me it was a hard job. It's a hard job because I did it. It's harder during impeachment. 
it's, you know, it is, there are days where you just think I, I cannot go out there, but you go out there and you go out there because the public has a right to know the public has a right to know what are the important questions of the day. Even if you don't have answers, knowing what the questions are, um, you know, is important. And the public has a right to know where, what the president thinks on any given issue on any given day. Now, they may not tune into the briefing every day, but they know that it's there and that is reassuring and it's an important part of our democracy. And it's just one of many ways that I think uh, Trump has attacked our democracy. And honestly, God help us if he gets four more years, um, because, you know, as Joe Biden likes to say, we can survive four years of this, but eight years, you know, we probably can't. Uh, I agree. Uh, which is why uh, I'm so passionate about making sure that the truth is out there, that people are informed, and why it matters. Because I just don't think that enough people recognize the existential threat that Trump poses on so many levels to our constitutional republic. Um, his attack on democratic norms, institutions, and ideals are is... is uh, it could, the long-term damage I, it worries me about the health of our republic and, to Joe Biden's point, the soul of our nation. So I agree with you on that. And um, I think also one thing to add to the role of the press secretary and the press briefings is I think the American people also expect that that person is going to tell the truth. Um, and that's something that has been desperately missing from this administration and from that role. And one of your tweets about Stephanie Grisham and Fox News, where you said, good morning and welcome to an early edition of the White House Daily Shadow Briefing. While Press Secretary has moved into the Fox studios for convenience, she hasn't yet made it to the briefing room, you know, the room where it happened for the press, for press secretary. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I do for your, for, for your listeners' benefit, uh, I, I do what I call the shadow briefing almost every day, which... And the idea behind it really is to surface the questions. Like if you, if I was the press secretary and you, once you've done that for a while, you know what the questions are going to be. I would, if I stepped into that job tomorrow, I could predict 80% of the questions just right. because if you follow the news, you know what people are going to ask, you know how they're going to ask it, you know what they're interested in. And so I do it, you know, primarily to surface those questions and to highlight the questions that the administration is ducking. But then there's a therapeutic aspect of me answering the questions, you know, using the truth and using my own interpretation of facts. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I just think it's important um, uh, to have, you know, in the absence of a White House briefing, at least have, to have a place to go to say, well, here's what they would have asked today. You know, I'd love for, I'd love for the White House correspondents to post their questions um, you know, on, on, you know, on some website every day, maybe I'll call them if we can get them to do that. Yeah. That's but, but, it, but, you know, it's just, they're, they're the, the, the public does have a right to know what their government's doing. And, uh, Donald Trump and Stephanie Grisham and Sarah Sanders have taken that right away from them. I don't know that people have focused on it. I don't know that um, people have felt the pinch of having a right taken away, but it is a right that has been uh, removed. Um, and at some point, they're going to figure that out, and there's going to be a lot of angry people. 
Well, I think there are a lot of angry people now. I don't know how, how uh, that's going to translate at the ballot box in November, but um, people need to pay attention. You know, it starts with the little things and they grow into bigger things. And once you start getting, once you start normalizing, taking, like you said, a right away like that, the right to know for the public, then, you know, what's next? And I, I think that's um, really the crux of why this impeachment matters and, and, and why so many of us are so um, passionate about uh, getting rid of Donald Trump <laughs> by any means necessary yeah. at this point. You know, I mean, it's, uh, this is not a joke. It's not a joke. This is not because we hate him. It's not some personal vendetta. It really is about patriotism and love of country and respect and, and, and for our, our democratic norms, institutions, and ideals. And we've just got to, you know, we got to do what it takes. So Joe Lockhart, thank you for your part. I look forward to your shadow briefings every day. That makes me chuckle. I was a, I was a press secretary, comms director on Capitol Hill, a little bit different than the White House, but the tenants are the same. And um, I am a kindred spirit with you in that respect when it comes to political communication. So thank you. Okay, thank you. Glad to be with you. Appreciate it. Again, a big thank you to Joe Lockhart for joining me as my guest this week. Um, I could talk to him all day about the Clinton stuff. That's, <laughs> that was a fascinating time. I lived through it. Um, no feel-good story this week. I just want to say I, I just want everyone, again, to hug their loved ones, keep things in perspective, and continue to stay involved because this year is going to be an unbelievable one and um, the soul of the nation's at stake. So... See you next week. Um, I'll be broadcasting from Cambridge for the next couple of months. So I'm excited. I'll have lots of Harvard stories. (laughs) See you next week.